1: Now, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hello,
2: darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating Slock Sober with Tom Sumner.
3: Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. I guess this hour is um, the author of a new book. Um, well, first of all, she is the former Deputy Director and Chief Operating Officer of the Massachusetts Health Connector, which was the model for the Affordable Care Act. And uh, she's written a book called Marching Toward Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care. Um, her name is... Uh, Rosemarie Day. She joins me by phone. Rosemarie, welcome to the show.
4: Well, thank you so much.
3: Um, Great Ro- to be here. Right out of the chute, um, the title of the book really calls for two things. Um, it First of all, it, ca- it calls for universal health care, but then it also uh, is a call to arms for women to lead the fight. How is it... Um, mm-hmm. And and I want to ask you two things about that. One, I, w- I want you to define what uh, universal health care is for us and, and so we have a better understanding of what that really means. We hear it all the time. Um, but, uh, but also, why a call to arms for women if they already make 80% of the health care decisions?
4: All right, thank you. Well, um, so universal health care, in my mind, is... Um, the way in which we would make healthcare a right in this country, so that would mean that every single uh, person in this country would be able to access some basic level of healthcare. They would get preventive care, they would get emergency care, um, and they would get certain amounts of treatments. Um, In England, um, they say we cover everyone, we don't cover everything. So it doesn't mean that every, you know, every single thing under the sun could be covered for every single person. There always have to be some kind of limits, but the point is that everybody would be getting some basic level of care to be defined by um, you know, the legislation that could potentially pass, what we can afford, but, but making that commitment, just like we do for K-12 through education, we expect every kid to be able to go to school so that 's the first thing is um, and there are many ways to get to universal health care. Most people have heard of Medicare for all that 's one possible way, but I write in the book about other ways to get there that I think might be more viable um, given uh, given the politics in our country so um, so I wanted to open people 's minds to other paths besides Medicare for all and the, Your second question about women and, and why is this a, a call to arms. Um, Because, yes, women are making 80 percent of the healthcare decisions. I called them, um, I I borrowed the phrase chief medical officer from somebody else who had written about women being (laughs) medical officer of their home, which, you know, in my business, you know, consulting world, being the CMO was a very, you know, powerful position. Um, And, you know, at the home front level, I guess you could say that's powerful, but it's not enough if you can't access health care coverage. It's not enough if you're underinsured. You are left having to make terrible choices. And so essentially, women have been disempowered at the political level. And that's actually the level where we can make the systemic change, where we can say, yes, as a society, we want health care to be a right. And we want to find a way to make that happen and afford it, which may mean we We change the priorities of where our tax dollars are going. Um, That is a systemic level of change that can only happen if women are more empowered at that political level. And it's not just going to be handed to us. So... I talk in the book about the personal is political. That was the the phrase that was used in some of the um, '60s and '70s uh, feminist movement conversations. And I want to remind people of that: that the challenges you're facing at the personal level can be very isolating and tremendously difficult, particularly during coronavirus. And the only way to overcome them is actually to band together and push for the systemic change.
3: And and. How far along are we toward this idea of having women lead the fight for uh, universal health care with so many women in the legislature and in business and health care and insurance? um, Aren't there already a lot of women in place who could take up the fight?
4: Well, the, um, the reality is a lot of this change needs to happen at the federal level. We've never had a woman president or vice president, the one thing. Um, And when you look at the makeup of Congress, um, even though women ran for office and won in record numbers in 2018, um, we still are only 24% of Congress. um, And we are a minority of governors. um, So that's the state level, of course. But the we are woefully underrepresented, um, at the federal level. Um, yes, there are more cabinet secretaries and others who've been appointed, but the real elected officials who vote about where budget dollars are going, um, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's are still few and far between. Um, so that is, that's what needs to shift. And we, we need to accelerate the change.
3: You know, you brought up um, the politics of all this, and we're doing this interview at a time when there's a, a rush on to um, confirm a, uh, a an appointment to the Supreme Court, and many say that it's in time for a critical vote on November 10th, in the Supreme Court regarding the Affordable Care Act. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think the Affordable Care Act is is going to get shot down by a new more conservative uh, Supreme Court?
4: Well you know I'm not a legal scholar um, but I certainly pay attention to those who are looking at what the odds are. and. Um, You know, there are many legal scholars who hold the view that this is a pretty weak case. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court is hearing it. And given um, how life has gone for us all in 2020, where the most, I think, unexpected things have become our new reality, I I don't feel like I could really be a better person (laughs) at this point. point. I don't think anyone feels that comfortable doing that. What we do know... Is that um, when the Affordable Care Act was upheld in 2012 that was a 5-4 decision with just Chief Justice Roberts being that fifth vote and he found a way to thread the needle to protect a number of elements of the Affordable Care Act not all but most of the core elements and you know could he do that with a 6-3 court I um, I don't know Uh, we don't exactly know where this nominee stands people are speculating Um, but she's not uh, definitively pro Affordable Care Act and she's not definitively pro-choice and so there are already things that make it more difficult of an equation and that's why combined with the fact that the Trump administration is still actively arguing to repeal the Affordable Care Act with that case so there won't be a vote on November 10th, but the hearing um, in front of the Supreme Court will happen, and those who are there will be the ones who can vote uh, and make the decision that will be rendered probably next June of 2021. So that's a ways away. It it is important who takes that seat. It's vitally important. Um, And, you know, I am on the side of saying this seat should not be filled until after the um, next president is seated
3: Even if, well, whichever way it goes, I suppose. Um, Mm -hmm. You were the chief operating officer for the Massachusetts Health Connector, the the model for the Affordable Care Act. And when the Affordable Care Act was passed, um, a lot of Democrats trying to uh, convince Republicans that it was an okay idea uh, credited Mitt Romney. With developing that healthcare model in Massachusetts, how much credit does Mitt? Yes. How much credit does Mitt Romney really deserve in in that? Uh, A lot. Really.
4: A lot of credit, absolutely, because it because it was the governor's um, leadership, then Governor Romney's leadership, uh, and the team that he had in place um, that that worked uh, to come up with. A creative way to make sure that Massachusetts didn't lose a lot of federal funding that was going towards um, paying for people who were uninsured and hit the ER or what-have-you and there was a way that some hospitals were getting reimbursed that the federal government said you know what we're not going to allow that anymore we're going to pull that money back and the Romney administration said hang on we don't want that to happen. We want to keep this money in our healthcare system, but what if we put it toward insuring people up front and, and creating a different model and, and, and his team really drove um, the, you know, the, intellectual development of of this, you know, drawing from ideas from the Heritage Foundation, working with other folks in Massachusetts who had laid out a roadmap to coverage um, that was put together by a combination of liberal folks and business interests, kind of lots of stakeholders involved and and then going to the legislature and working it out with them in a bipartisan way because it was a democratic controlled legislature. There were so many components to it. It truly was um, an act of leadership and, and a bipartisan undertaking. And so, yes, I, I, I give him and his team a, a tremendous amount of credit, folks who are already enrolled.
3: We'll have more with Rosemary Day, author of Marching Toward Coverage, straight mm-hmm. into-
2: Hello out there everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-double-G-U-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
6: Because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad America.
5: Council.
3: Your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having play dates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual play dates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
1: East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint
0: or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community
2: focused and community supported.
3: Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again. This time, from
5: heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven.
3: Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, All Dug Up, Lying in the Chapel and eleven others, this record also includes a special Elvis message hello ladies and gentlemen I'm Elvis Presley order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain open it up yes the king inside a must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from heaven, P.O. Box 714, Clio, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents add
2: $3.
4: Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology.
2: The Tom Sumner program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com
3: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. We'll have more with Rosemarie Day, author of "Marching Toward Coverage." Straight ahead, does the Massachusetts Health Connector still play a role um, since the Affordable Care Act has been passed?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, Because the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, was based on the connector model as a prototype, but but it, it deviated from a number of the things that we had done in Massachusetts. So there was still work that had to be done to uh, bring what Massachusetts was doing more in line with where the federal law was, a lot of detailed stuff. And then we, uh, we'd existed for four years, um, you know, from 2006 to 2010 when the ACA passed. We were, we were running, and we had members, you know, 100,000-plus um, members. And um, so we had to continue serving them. And then um, I left, but people... Um, we're still thinking about ways to um, build upon what we had done, conform with the federal law, but continue to be creative as a state-based exchange and do things that were really Massachusetts-specific, which is kind of the beauty of being able to do stuff at the state level. So there was all kinds of um, work to be done and a commitment to the people who were already enrolled um, and it had been a tremendously successful model. We had gotten down to about 2% uninsured in our state, which was near universal coverage. Um, now, what they've had to do since since Trump was elected was navigate all of the um, changes that the Trump administration has put forward that, frankly, undermine the Affordable Care Act. And so this state and some other states have found ways to mitigate those cutbacks and do things via state law, et cetera, that protect um, the...
3: Is there there a good rationale for having a national health care program as opposed to having states like Massachusetts set up their own?
4: Well, you know, the the model, yes, there's a rationale because... Massachusetts um, has really been at the forefront along with a a handful of other states um, traditionally that have tried to break new ground in terms of expanding health care coverage, but ultimately states don't have the same amount of resources that the federal government does, Um, and there are always states that are um, bringing up the rear when it comes to health policy and covering more people. And sadly, that tends to be um, the Southern states and a number of Midwestern states. But as of this moment, there are still 12 states that have not expanded their Medicaid program to help cover the the poorest folks in their their states, even though the Affordable Care Act provided 100% federal funding for that expanded coverage. It's now down to 90%, but even when it was 100%, there are states that said, we do not want to do Obamacare in any way, shape, or form, and so they did not expand Medicaid. Um, And sadly, that's the situation we're in. We have quite a range of of state approaches. Um, I could go on, you know, back when Medicaid was started in 1965, it was left to state option, and um, whether to have a Medicaid program at all. And it actually took 17 years for all the states to decide to join in. There were lots of early adopters, and then the very last state to come in was Arizona in 1983. And kind of a fun fact, but it was (laughs) a long time to get all the states on board and 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 that's i don't think things have changed significantly when we look at again this medicaid expansion option we've still got this dozen states that are holding out and and that includes florida and texas two very populated states that are looking at 25 percent of their population being uninsured in a pandemic so if if you leave it to the states there are a lot of people who are harmed so I I think there has to be some national commitment and that gives everybody um, kind of at least some baseline of equality across the states. And then if states want to, you know, do more, add on bells and whistles, that's fine. They can opt, do more.
3: You were talking about Medicare for all and you've talked about some other ways to reach universal health care in your book. Uh, but another phrase that gets bandied around in the in the political forums is uh, a single payer plan. Um, what is a single payer plan and what does that do to health care coverage and, and uh, payment as we understand it currently, to the degree that we do understand it?
4: Right. So a, a single payer plan is actually um what medicare is all the money is collected by the federal government and then um, the federal government sets the payment rates out to um, all the doctors and hospitals and they actually then pay for the care that people get so um so we have a form of single payer already and that's that's medicare um you know, in England, the National Health Service is a single payer plan, and it's very much reliant on a government infrastructure of doctors and hospitals as well. Um, so that's like even more complete government control. Medicare in the U.S. buys um, services from the private sector, and so so it's the payer part that's, that's government controlled, not the not the provider part. Um, so th- the thing is. Um, you know, we've accepted Medicare um, for as a a construct and being single payer for the population it's serving. Um, Moving the rest of the population, the vast majority of whom are getting their care paid for by private insurers um, through their jobs. Um, That's like half of our population actually is getting their health insurance coverage that way. Moving them away from um, the private insurers and saying this is going to be replaced with a government single-payer plan like Medicare for All was proposed to be, um, in my view, is too much change for people to accept and digest, and that instead there needs to be a form of choice in that, and that's actually what the what's being talked about around a public option, that there would be a government plan, but you wouldn't have to take it. You could choose
3: it you know when i first started hearing that phrase single-payer plan um i thought it had something to do with how individuals paid for their health care and and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know
4: nope right it's 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 about um it's the government is the is the one that is the single payer
3: yeah because it's talking about who's paying the bill for the for the coverage um yep. Yep. why why is it important in a free market to have health insurance companies serving sort of as a a, a middle uh as as the middleman Um
4: it certainly does add cost, and that's one of the arguments for single-payer is that, that a lot of things could be streamlined um, and, and, and administrative costs reduced if, if providers um, of health care, the doctors and hospitals, are only having to bill one place. However, that single-payer wields an awful lot of power. As with Medicare, they set the rates. Most doctors and hospitals are not wild about that notion that the government would be setting even more rates than they already do. They set the rates right now for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, they, you know, the provider systems are relying on commercial payers and the higher level of rates that commercial payers are paying, um, and do not want the cuts that would inevitably come. If we move to some kind of single payer system, that that's one reason for why it seems to me pretty infeasible. Um, there would be profound pushback from the provider system. There also would be pushback um, from the insurers that are in business today, and um, you know because they may have some role to play in a in a single payer world, actually, um, but but it would be less than what they do today. Um, and then finally, consumers or citizens would push back because there's real distrust of having government heavily involved in what people perceive as their own individual choice about what kind of health care they get. Even if they aren't in as much of the driver's seat as they'd like to be um, with with what they're getting from their private insurers, they still uh, perceive themselves you know, having more choice than if it was government controlled. And that's a really profound um, value that we we have as a society, um, one that is not uh, going to just change overnight. And so again, in terms of what's feasible, I really feel that we've got to hold on to um, some form of private insurance, even if it's not as efficient, um, and find ways to Regulate that, you know, manage it, take out some of the inefficiencies, but still give consumers and citizens choice that they hold dear.
3: A lot of people blame insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies for the high cost of health care. Um, mm-hmm. Would it be better if those organizations were nonprofits?
4: <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of nonprofits. I, I I think that um, <laughs> you know we saw in Massachusetts where we got to near universal coverage. The majority of our insurers are nonprofits here in this state, um, and most of our healthcare um, provider systems are also um, nonprofits. Now they can still be very expensive. <laughs> we have some of the highest costs per person of healthcare in the country, um, but being nonprofit certainly brings in more overtly um, a, a dedication to a mission um, and not necessarily just returns to shareholders. Um, and I do believe that nonprofits can be innovative. That's often an argument made for why we've got to keep stuff all for profit, that we would lose innovation. I'm not completely uh, sold on that um, as a premise, but um, I do think that we've had um, the profit aspect um, so fairly unfettered um, for for too long, and that, that that is part of what's making our healthcare system so expensive. Um, but you know that that's only part of it. Um, I I do think there are some things that could be done, and I I, I put uh, some of these ideas in the book. But other people have written entire books on this topic, so I don't weigh in as heavily. But I certainly think that um, we ought to be able to, for example, negotiate um, pharmaceutical rates for the Medicare program, which we currently, by law, can't and don't do. Um, that would just be one piece I would throw on the table. I have many other suggestions.
3: Rosemary, the U.S. spends like twice as much per person on health care mm. than other developed countries. Um yeah, why is that? Um,
4: you know it's <laughs> i've I've seen uh, some economists write you know the article, it's the price is stupid. I think uh, the latest <laughs> day Reinhardt uh, was famous for for saying that and keeping that front and center. we We um pay uh, we pay um, our doctors mostly more in the specialist category than the primary care category we pay them a lot more than um, the equivalent um, providers make in other countries As one one example we also are, have fee-for-service um, incentives that uh, mean people go for more tests and uh, you know than they m- maybe need for any given condition those who have really good coverage um are probably getting overtested and and over and and then there are people with no coverage who are it's the opposite situation and so kind of balancing that out is is another um, aspect of where we're just not making wise investments we could spend um, a little more on prevention and um and that's not expensive you know, per person, and then avoid some of the downstream expensive costs. You know, we could catch cancer earlier, nip it in the bud, and then not have to um, have people, you know, get to this advanced stage where they then need a bone marrow transplant. You know, those are the kinds of things um, that we could be doing.
3: Or multiple surgeries and treatments over years instead of, you know, some very simple procedure in the beginning.
4: Well, yes. I mean, there's a lot of evidence now that that um, back pain um, were a little too quick to say somebody needs surgery, whereas they could actually have um, a, a different form of treatment um, with uh, with some medications, but but frankly, like a kind of musculoskeletal treatment, and not necessarily go on a fast track to back surgery. Um, there are there are alternatives, and and the. We're not as incentivized to pursue them because of the the problems with our system.
3: Um, we started out, uh, Rosemary, talking about uh, basically the very title of your book, um, bringing up the need for universal health care and and calling women to arms to lead the charge. Obviously, those are two major points you want to come out of the book, but. Is there a a clear path to uh, universal health care? Do you make recommendations about how we can get there?
4: I, I do make recommendations and i I have a um, you know there are awesome folks in washington d c who are working in, in think tanks and and de- designing um, alternatives to Medicare for all that could be a path that includes you know bolstering what the affordable care act structure allowed for and adding to it Um, and so that it's a path that gives us some nice big incremental pieces that we could digest and not just reject out of hand Um, so there are paths what i wanted to encourage people uh, to do in in reading this book is to not worry about all of those details as much um, because you know I'm a policy wonk at heart and I love doing this <laughs> stuff but it becomes intimidating I think for some people to feel like oh this is too complicated so I, I, I don't I, I can't weigh in like I'm not qualified to or whatever and I just wanted to make it clear that if the body politic is saying we want health care for all we want health care to be a right We elect people and send them to Washington to go and do that. Somewhat like what a board of directors does and tells a company, you know, we're setting this direction, and now you, management team, go figure it out. Go work through these details. I see us, um, you know, as the body of politics, putting the pressure on who we send to D.C. and therefore the system in D.C. to figure it out because there are lots of good options on the table. Um, And to leave that to those experts, But they have to know that there is public pressure to make this happen. And I believe that with the pandemic, this is a moment to seize because it is so terrible what's happening to people. And the fact that so many people have lost jobs and with it their health insurance coverage, it really undermines our our basic premise that employer-sponsored insurance is the way to go. We have to have some stronger and more viable alternatives the ACA started that. We're not all the way there. Combined with the fact that we're going to have even more people with pre-existing conditions because of COVID and the insidious way that virus works, um, there's, th- those numbers are growing. It's already over 100 million to, before COVID. And now we're adding millions more people who've been infected with COVID. So we have to continue to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And women as caregivers are on the front lines of that so while I don't want to burden women more I make the point that activism can actually be very empowering and take you it, it, it's, it's a channel to get rid of despair and to turn to hope and that's really what we need
3: you know when the Affordable Care Act was passed a lot was made of the fact that it was 3,000 pages long and it was you know very complicated <laughs> even uh, The Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, said, well, we have to pass it to know what's in it, Um, (laughs) basically setting up the premise that who's going to read 3,000 pages and comprehend it. Um, But is your understanding of the Affordable Care Act something that can be easily tweaked or fixed, or or do we need, uh, should we be looking for an overhaul?
4: Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I would never say it's easily tweaked or fixed because nothing about the ACA has been easy given <laughs> the, the pushback from so many states and the challenges that keep going to the Supreme Court. There's nothing easy. But I go back in, to the basics that this model of the ACA was truly built um, in a bipartisan way, from the think tanks to the first state that did it, Um, It did not pass bipartisan in Washington, D.C., I know that, but the underpinning, the framework, truly was built on a a bipartisan um, uh, structure, And, and I think that's been shown to be true when Republicans couldn't come up with an alternative, when they said, okay, we won't just repeal the ACA, we'll replace it. They almost didn't have anywhere to go that was better than the ACA. Because you needed the ACA's construct to truly protect people with pre-existing conditions and keep insurers in the marketplace. And all of those components really fit together well and and have so much potential, as we saw in Massachusetts, if it's fully um, embraced and implemented. So trying to do a complete overhaul, there's really nowhere, I don't see anywhere else to go unless it, it swung all the way to something like Medicare for All, which was having government do virtually everything. And, and I, I foresaw just tremendous pushback on that um, and that it would become essentially infeasible to get there at this stage of our country's evolution. So for now, I see a path that builds on what we have already got with the ACA and goes from there.
3: Well, the book is called Marching Toward Coverage, How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Health Care by Rosemarie Day. And Rosemarie, thank you so much for uh, spending time to talk a little bit about the book and and give us kind of a tease of uh, what can be learned from this book. Um, We're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. But are there yeah. some some websites or other resources where people can maybe educate themselves a little bit more about health care and what some of the uh, options are politically?
4: Absolutely. Um, and I, I actually just send people to my website um, as an author. I set one up rosemarie Day dot com. And that is a a clearinghouse for ways in which uh, you can get involved um, no matter what stage of activism you're comfortable with, um, even if just getting more informed is what um, you need to do. Of course, yes, please read the book. uh, Listen to the book. Um, It's on audio. It's available. Website will send you there. But then you can also um, sign up for a lot of organizations that I've posted on the website that will keep you current on the issues. Um, And also, if you're... Woman interested in politics or supporting women in politics. There's um, paths to that as well. So there's a quiz you can take about your comfort levels, activism, and I'm encouraging everybody to um, come step out of their comfort zone and step up to a higher level of activism.
3: Well, Rosemary, I really appreciate the time we've spent together. It's a, been a, a very delightful and informative conversation, and I'm always so impressed with people who understand healthcare. Oh,
0: thank you. <laughs> well, I want I want to uh,
4: spread the word so that because healthcare should be a right and it should be just that simple uh, in some ways, and so I don't want people to be intimidated by the topic.
3: Well, thanks again.
4: Thank you so much for having me. Take, Take care. care.
3: Once again, that was uh, Rosemarie Day, the uh, author of uh, "Marching Toward Coverage: How Women Can Lead the Fight for Universal Healthcare." We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. The Time
2: Sumner Program.com The Time Sumner Program.com
3: Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for
5: listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew.
3: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom
5: Sumner Program.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons. For once, the walls of the Bickersons' apartment do not resound with the persistent snoring of husband John Moore's The Pity. There can be only one reason for this astounding phenomenon. John Bickerson is not home. Two o'clock in the morning finds Mrs. Bickerson on the telephone with Sister Clara. Let's listen.
1: What did you say, Blanche? I said I haven't heard from John since he left for work. You'd think he'd telephone me or something. Well, maybe he tried to call. You've had the phone tied up for over an hour, Blanche. You've called me three times. He's never done this before. I think he wants to upset me. He gets so angry every time I spend a dollar. He says I'm the biggest spendthrift in California. Am I, Clara? I don't think so. Well, John does. And you know how careful I am about money. Yes, well, I have to give the baby his bottle. You do? What time is it there in New York? It's almost 5.30 in the morning. Georgie gets a bottle every two hours now. He's four weeks old. He isn't gaining much, though. Well, what does he weigh? Sixty-one pounds. I don't like the doctor we have now. He thinks George is too heavy. Well, I think he's the cutest little thing I ever saw. Oh, did John's shoes fit him all right? Well, they pinch a little in the toes. Oh, but you can get them fixed. Oh, I think John's here. Goodbye, Clara. John!
3: I can't find the blasted light switch.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you're home, sweetheart. I'm in here. Huh? Never mind the lights. Come to bed, darling.
3: I must have the wrong apartment. Uh, Excuse me, madam.
1: John, come back here.
3: Oh, hello.
1: Where have you been?
3: Working. Let me get undressed. I'm exhausted. Why
1: didn't you call? Don't throw your good coat on the floor. John.
3: You can sweep it up in the morning. No
1: call. No message? No nothing? Why didn't you call?
3: Didn't have a nickel.
1: You did, too. You had a quarter in your pocket this morning. Who did you take to dinner
3: tonight? The whole chorus from Earl Carroll's. That's me, boy, Diamond Jim Bickerson.
1: Don't be so funny.
3: Oh, I'm not funny. I'm exhausted.
1: I bet you never even thought of calling me. Other men call their wives... If Mel Shaw leaves the house for even five minutes, he calls Louise.
3: Calls her what?
1: That lot you care about me. I've been sitting here worrying myself into a stew. What did you eat? Stew. John Vickerson, let me look at you. Are you sure you've been in the office till now?
3: Well, where do you think I've been?
1: I don't know. You didn't pass a cocktail bar on your way home, did you?
3: I never pass a cocktail bar.
1: That's what I thought. You had a drink.
3: I did not.
1: You had more than one.
3: I didn't have any.
1: Then why are you trying to take your pants off over your head? What pants?
3: This is the sweater you made for me out of your old slacks. I'm the only man in town with a v-neck seat. Stop
1: complaining. It keeps you warm.
3: Put out the lights, Blanche. I can't hold my eyes open.
1: John, you're not going to sleep in that horrible old sheepskin vest.
3: Well, I'm cold.
1: Take it off. It looks hideous.
3: Nobody sees it.
1: Now you just get up and put on some pajamas.
3: I hate pajamas. They strangle me.
1: Well, you can't wear that thing. Can too. What if there's a fire?
3: I won't go. Good night, Blanche.
1: You just get out of that bed and hang up your clothes. Don't leave them for me.
3: Blanche, I'm sleepy.
1: I'm always crawling under the dresser and picking up your collar buttons. I pick up your ties, and I pick up your handkerchiefs. What do you think I am, a vacuum cleaner?
3: No, Blanche, a vacuum cleaner can be turned off. Look, Blanche, <laughs> do me a favor, will you? I worked 18 hours today. Just let me close my eyes for a couple of hours, will you?
1: I'm afraid the minute you fall asleep, you'll start snoring.
3: No, I won't snore. I never snore.
1: How can you say that? You've never missed a single night since the second day we were married. You snore on Monday, you snore on Tuesday, on Wednesday you snore, on Thursday you snore. So what'll you do tonight? Oh, for the love of... Nobody would believe it. I'm married to a cellar pump. John, John, you promised you wouldn't snore. And the minute you closed your eyes, you started.
3: Mm-hmm. John! Ange, what do you want from me?
1: I won't stand for it. Go sleep in the guest room.
3: We haven't got a guest room.
1: If you were a good husband, you'd see that we had two guest rooms. <sighs> you used to have plenty of ambition before we were married. Whatever hmm. happened to your get-up-and-go?
3: He got up and went.
1: I might have known you like you are. Selfish, inconsiderate, thoughtless, you didn't even send me a Valentine card.
3: St. Valentine's Day isn't until tomorrow. It's still tonight.
1: Tonight was yesterday. Today is tomorrow. What? And I know you didn't send a card because you didn't send me one last year.
3: Well, I forgot last year. You
1: always forget. You forgot my birthday. You. I bet you don't even know when you married me, do you?
3: No, I don't.
1: John Bickerson... You don't know when you married me?
3: When? Oh, I thought you said why.
1: I suppose you can a great catch. I could have married a half dozen of the wealthiest men in town. No, I had to fall for your smooth talk. You kept calling me your buried treasure, didn't
2: you?
3: Didn't I what?
1: Didn't you always call me your buried treasure?
3: Maybe I did.
1: Well, what have you got to say now?
3: I'm sorry I dug you up. Good night, Blanche.
1: <laughs> sorry you dug me up? There wasn't another girl in our crowd who would ever have given you a second look.
3: Oh, I don't know about that. Most of those dames thought I had what it takes.
1: Well, maybe you had it. But who took it? And what did I get out of this marriage? Jewels? No. Clothes? No. Money? No. What did I get? No. I'll tell you what I got. A one-room apartment and a leaky icebox.
3: A leaky icebox.
1: Every night my pillow is wet from my tears.
3: Put a pan under it.
1: You're not listening to me. You don't care what happens. I wish I'd never been born.
3: Oh, Blanche, what's the matter with you? Why don't you go to sleep?
1: How can I sleep? How can I sleep when I know you don't love me?
3: Who said I don't love you?
1: Well, you never tell me you do.
3: I tell you a thousand times a day. I offered to pay a man $50 for a six-inch tattoo that says, John loves Blanche. Why did you object?
1: Because it would show when I wore my evening gown.
3: Well, I was going to let him do it on me too. Anything to put a stop to that same question night after night after night.
1: If you'd only say it once of your own accord, I'd never ask you.
3: Okay, I love you.
1: Do you love me only? Yes. When I'm away from you? Yes. Well, say it.
3: I love you only when you're away from me.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's why you stayed out, cavorting, until 2 o'clock this morning.
3: I wasn't cavorting. I was working. What for? Because I get paid for overtime and we need the money. I have to make a payment on my car next week, $84.
1: Where will you get that?
3: Oh, I got it. It's in the desk drawer.
1: No, it isn't. It is,
3: too. I looked yesterday.
1: You didn't look today.
3: Oh, Blanche.
1: Well, there's only $60 in that drawer, John.
3: What happened to the other $24?
1: Don't look at me.
3: Listen, Blanche, there are only two people who have a key to that drawer, you and I, and $24 is missing.
1: Well, let's each put back $12 and say no more about it. I
3: knew it. I knew it. What did you blow it on?
1: Well, I had to pay the phone bill. I made a few long-distance calls.
3: Long-distance calls? Who did you call for $24?
1: My sister, Clara. I was worried. She had a tooth pulled.
3: How could you squander my money like that? I deny myself everything. Do I even buy toothpaste? No. I've been brushing my teeth with a whisk broom. I stick tinfoil in my cavities to save on dentist bills. I've been wearing an upper plate that belongs to my cousin. She calls New York every five minutes.
1: Don't make such a fuss. Claire is my only sister, and I have a perfect right to call her. Anyway, Barney's in the hospital. Who's Barney? Clara's husband, when he was out looking for a job, he tripped over a bar rail and two cases of bourbon fell on his head.
3: Well, it's the first time the drinks were ever on him.
1: How can you say that? Barney's not cheap. He takes good care of Clara. She has a lovely home. And they've got money for everything.
3: Oh, sure. Money for everything.
1: Don't sneer. Last week, Clara had her tonsils taken out. And Venetian blinds put in.
3: With a mouth like hers, they could do it. (laughs) If that bum Barney isn't working, where do they get the dough?
1: Accident insurance. He's collected a fortune on accident insurance. Every time Clara has a baby, he jumps off the roof. What? He doesn't hurt himself too bad. Just enough to collect the insurance. You haven't got any, have you, John?
3: No. I don't want to talk about it. I want to sleep.
1: But suppose something happens to you. What if you have an accident and you can't work?
3: We'll starve.
1: We're starving now.
3: That's too bad. It's
1: easy for you to talk like that. If anything happened, I'd be left helpless and destitute. Why don't you get some accident insurance, John?
3: I'll get some next week.
1: You say it, but you won't do it. Why don't you get it
3: now? What?
1: Go on. Get up. Get some accident insurance.
3: Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's almost 3 o'clock in the morning.
1: Well, people have accidents all hours of the night.
3: I'm not going to have any accidents tonight.
1: How do you know?
3: Blanche, why don't you let me sleep? Well,
1: just promise me you'll get some accident insurance. Why? Because it's a wonderful protection. Clara told me two weeks ago, a man broke his hip and he got 5,000 dollars. Last week, Barney fractured his skull and got10,000 dollars.
3: Well, what about it?
1: Next week, you may be the lucky one.:
3: Good night, John. Good,
1: Good night, John.
2: Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
3: You pilots get off of my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come Go on! Come Go on, get out of here!